0: Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to bring you God's Word this morning. My name is Alex. For those of you I've not yet had the pleasure of meeting, and I serve on staff here, and uh, it's good to see you all this Lord's Day. Well, you can imagine my horror when I learned that the last time I was in this pulpit, I preached for 59 minutes and 59 seconds, exactly. So don't worry. I promise this time I'll hit 60 minutes. Just kidding. Just kidding. My wife wouldn't let me do that. It's her birthday. She's like, can you make it 30 minutes? I'm like, babe, that's like you just get warmed up, but. Well, as we prayed about what the Lord was laying on our hearts for these three weeks in August, the one question that really boiled to the surface was that of what is to be the Christian's attitude in the troubled days in which we live. And there's reasons to celebrate. After all, we're saved, those of us who are here, who are in Christ. There's so much good. There's fellowship and hospitality that's growing throughout the culture of the church. Even culturally, there's little victories. Roe v. Wade is overturned. There's things we can rejoice in. Of course, there's also reasons to mourn or to lament. So many prayer requests each week for unsaved family. So many prayer requests for health issues. And of course, culture is tumbling down the slippery slope in every conceivable way right now. And the Christian life is always this weird mixture of, of joy and glory and suffering and lament. Crosses and crowns, because after all, we serve a crucified and risen Savior. So there's always a mixture. But if we had to pick one word or one attitude to describe our spirit, what would that be? One of the simplest, most straightforward biblical answers to that question is simply to say that it's God's will for us to have joy and to rejoice. Not a blind, giddy happiness all the time, no matter what. Joy is this deep, rich, abiding sense of of rejoicing, delighting in who God is and his purposes for our lives. But it's also capable of being intermingled with sorrow. Joy is capable of a lot. And the other thing about joy is that it demands a reason behind it. You can be happy for maybe no apparent reason. You really can't feel joy for no reason. It demands an explanation. So, why joy? And so we turn to Philippians, the epistle of joy, which mention, mentions joy or a version of the word joy 16 times in its mere four chapters. And Paul writes it while imprisoned. So this isn't blind optimism. There's something deeper here, in spite of its circumstances, and how did he experience that joy? We want to find out. We won't finish the book this month, but we will be returning to this book whenever there are breaks in the normal preaching schedule. And so we look forward to slowly plodding our way through the book of Philippians. And over these next three weeks, we intend to hit three mountain peaks of the first chapter, because there's at least three reasons to rejoice that are presented to us just in this chapter alone. Today, we'll see the first of those is the sovereignty of God in our salvation, especially in verse 6 that we'll hone in on. Next week, we'll see the providence of God in the advance of the gospel, which is in verse 12 and following, Paul's thought there. And finally, third, we'll see the value of Christ and the inevitability of our fruitful labor for him, as Matt just shared from Philippians 1, 21, and the following verse, 22, show us the value of knowing Christ. So those are three reasons to rejoice. We'll dive into the first one this morning, but first... By way of background on this book, briefly, you might remember from the book of Acts, when Paul received his Macedonian call, a man from Macedonia came to him in the night while he was at Troas, right on the coast of the Aegean Sea in modern-day Turkey, on the westmost coast. The man told him, come over here and help us, and so he goes, he crosses over into Philippi, a Roman colony, where there's a Jewish women's prayer meeting meeting on the beach. And there, Lydia, one of the wealthy merchants of the town, is at the prayer meeting. The Lord opens her heart to believe the things that are being taught to her by Paul. Then he goes and casts out a fortune-telling demon from a girl, which upsets the local economy, lands him in jail. Then the Lord miraculously frees him from jail in the middle of the night, and the jailer falls down at his feet and says, "'What must I do to be saved?' And he says, "'Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household.'" It's all in Acts chapter 16. So this predominantly Gentile church in Philippi starts with a successful businesswoman, a seller of fine purples, a former demoniac, and a prison guard. So it's a pretty ragtag congregation if ever there was one. And yet it's one which Paul loved dearly, which is why about 10 years later, around the year 59 or so, he writes this address to them. And he writes warmly, and this is what he says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy word, we ask that you'd give us understanding, hearts to believe and to obey it. We pray that you would eliminate me Anything that I say that's not of you, let it be forgotten. But anything that is of you, Lord, let us take it deep into our hearts. Please conform us more to the image of Christ even through studying this text. Fill us with the joy that we need to have in these dark days. And Lord, do this all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our text, we have three sections. We have a greeting in the first two verses, a thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8, and a prayer at the end. In verses 9 through 11, we'll do our best to make it through each of those. And already, Paul's joy is jumping off the page at us for three reasons that we'll consider today. And so our thesis, or our main point for today, is that in times of testing, the joyful Christian delights in gospel fellowship, partakes in gospel suffering, and perseveres in gospel fruit. Again, our theme for this morning is that in times of testing, the joyful Christian delights in gospel fellowship, partakes in gospel suffering, and perseveres in gospel fruit. So let's turn to consider our very first point from the first six verses, which can be summarized in that the joyful Christian delights in gospel fellowship. Our first point is that the joyful Christian delights in gospel fellowship. And already it should be apparent that this letter is deeply personal for Paul. And he begins by naming himself and his addressees, Paul and Timothy, verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, recall that Timothy was with Paul in Acts chapter 16 as they were doing ministry there, so it makes sense that Paul mentions Timothy in his Address, and he identifies him and Timothy as servants, or douloi, or bond servants, or slaves, depending on your translation. Make no mistake, the word here is the word rendered "slave." Most other places, of course, the idea of slavery offends our modern sensibilities. We immediately think of the harshness of human slavery in history, in our own history, things that grieve us rightly. But if the idea offends us, we should remember first that, well, we don't have the right to judge those historically in Paul's day. We aren't better than them because we live in this modern period. But more to the point, it is not the case that we're given a choice as humans between either freedom or this sort of slavery to Christ that Paul describes. That's not the binary that we are given to choose from. Rather... The options are to be a slave to Christ or a slave to sin. But in the words of the great prophet, Bob Dylan, everyone's got to serve somebody. And it's true. He's got some good lyrics. Everyone's got to serve somebody. Either we are slaves to righteousness, to our God, or slaves to sin, to the flesh. And given the choice, I would far rather serve Jesus He's the best master there is, amen? There's no abuse, mistreatment with him. There's no harshness. Rather, he died in love for his servants, his slaves. Slavery to Christ is freedom. It's the truest freedom that there could possibly be. Paul and Timothy write to these addressees, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Of course, we... Saying about what it means to be in Christ. And all of us who are in Christ are saints, saints in Christ Jesus. If you come, with, come from a, a Roman Catholic background, you might be inclined to think that a saint is a special type of Christian, perhaps one associated with miracles, one canonized by the church. But that's not Paul's theology. A saint, which simply means a holy one, is anyone who's set apart, anyone who's consecrated, which is true of all of us who are in Christ. Every Christian is made holy, set apart, because of what Christ has done to make them holy. Not because they're better, not because they're more pious, but because of Christ. And he addresses them with the overseers and deacons later in verse 1. There's two offices in the church, elders and deacons, The biblical terms overseer or bishop or pastor or elder or shepherd are all interchangeable for the same office of elder. They rule, they teach, they exercise authority, they lovingly shepherd, and then deacons tend to the physical needs of the church, service to the poor, and so forth. They are with the saints, Paul says, with the overseers and deacons, not above but with. So we're getting a sense of the intimacy that Paul feels. They're all sort of together. Paul and Timothy, slaves of of Christ, all the saints with the overseers and deacons, everyone together in one boat in Christ. Well, pause and think, how do you, on your Instagram, on your resume, on your CV, how do you identify yourself? Maybe your Twitter bio, whatever it is. Are you a, a husband, a father? A wife, a mother, maybe a teacher, a business owner, a project manager, retiree, athlete, artist, musician, American, maybe conservative or independent or reformed. I'm a reformed Christian. All those labels have their place. But how many of us would think to describe ourselves as a saint and as a slave of the Lord? If we've ever struggled in fellowship at this church at all, and in the warmth that we have towards each other, the affection. Let me submit to you that perhaps if we all regarded ourselves primarily by our identity in Christ as slaves and as servants, we would find it far easier to relate to those who are, well, who are different from us, even in this body. But back to our big question, how are we to feel in these challenging days? Let the next words in verse 2 rest on your heart. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a greeting. The Greeks in Paul's day, when they would write a letter, they would use the word greetings, karain. They'd say greetings. Paul Christianizes that word. He doesn't say karain, he says karis. Not just greetings, but grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness towards us. God gives us grace, not only in Christ and in salvation. Everything we have is of grace. Everything in life, the sun rising, the air we breathe, it's all of grace, it's all free, undeserved, unmerited. And then peace is the result of grace. Because of God's kindness to us, the result is that we experience peace. Paul Christianized the greeting that the Greeks used. Then he also Christianizes the common greeting that the Jews used, shalom. They use it to this day, shalom, peace. In the Jewish conception, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is total tranquility and wholeness of the soul, of one's relationships, of the society itself. It's this holistic idea. So God gives us his free grace in Christ, and the result is that we have peace with God, peace within ourselves, peace with one another. And note that this comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be guilty of thinking, and we've all thought it from time to time, that God the Father is the angry, capricious one that Jesus convinces to love us. That's not the case. Rather, the Father, Son, and Spirit are unified in love for us, and the Son died for us because the Father already loved us, chose us in eternity past. Jesus' mission in John 6 Verse 39, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. His mission is to save the ones that the Father already loved. Why rejoice these days? Well, right now, no matter what you did before church, how your van ride went, what bickering is going on, whatever you did this week, if you're in Christ right now, God the Father and the Son look at you and give you their grace and their peace. They've set their affections on you. They love you. Verses 3 and 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here's where Paul's deep sense of fellowship and love becomes even more explicit. He tells the Philippians that he thanks God for them, and then he explains why. He says, I thank God for you, and here's why. At first, he thanks God and rejoices whenever he remembers them. Let's just consider, many of us have made a practice of praying for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do you ever just thank God for a fellow Christian? you ever just think of someone, and maybe this week, try it. If you think of a member of this church, just thank God for them, for who they are. Pray for their needs, of course, but just thank God for them. How might our fellowship deepen on a Sunday? If I could look into the eyes of the person sitting across from me and say, I thanked God for you this week. How are you doing? And Paul then explains why he does this. Their partnership, verse 5, in the gospel. The word here is also the word translated fellowship, koinonia, a word many of us have heard in church through the years. Their fellowship or partnership in the gospel is why he thanks God for them. John Calvin in his commentary on this verse helpfully points out that Paul is saying these things, one, to encourage them, two, to kind of exhort them to keep doing what they're doing, to keep up the good work, to spur them on. So Paul's not just excited that the Philippians, as well as Paul, are passive recipients of salvation. They've received the grace of God. He's certainly joyful about that. But they're partners, they're fellows in a fellowship. And we hear the word fellowship, we think of potlucks, we think of things in crockpots of questionable origin. Not here, elsewhere in the world. Well, when you hear the word fellowship, think of, think of Tolkien's classic. Think of the fellowship of the ring. What is the fellowship of the ring? It's a band of brothers. It's brothers in arms, committed to a single cause, willing to die for each other. Even though they're separated in the course of Tolkien's trilogy throughout Middle Earth, they reunify in the end, don't they? They're committed to a cause. And so their fellowship in the gospel, here it's not only that they're committed to believing the gospel, but also co-workers in Paul's mission to advance it. In Acts 16, when Paul planted the church, Lydia, the first convert, immediately opened her home as a base of operation for Paul and his missionary fellowship, his band of brothers. She was saved, and immediately she joins the mission. That's the cause that they were committed to. And so Paul says, even from the first day until now, Lydia is the example of that. And by the way, here again, I want to commend and encourage this church. Those of us that serve in the church in varying ways, We are deeply encouraged by how this church has excelled in its fellowship and in its heart for the mission, especially as of late. I see the Mercado's excitement to build a missions wall and to turn our lobby into a display for for international missions, for church planters. We see the missions committees and others' faithfulness in praying for missionaries, subscribing to their prayer letters, to Kim's prayer letter, and to others. We hear about the generous donations that you all have made in a time of great economic turmoil, honestly. By the way, this is to God's credit and glory. You've given more to Myanmar since Easter than you gave to last year's Christmas project or to the one prior. That's the grace of God at work in this congregation as he continues to to give us fruit, to give you joy, to give you commitment to the mission of God. And it brings the elders of the church and others great joy to see. Of course, Paul's mission did cost him something. It landed him in chains. And it cost the Philippians something as well, which we'll see. But first, Paul gives another reason for his joy. Verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you don't have this highlighted, underlined in your Bible, let me encourage you to do so. This is one to keep on the sticky side of your mind. Consider what's being said. First, who is the he? He who began a good work in the Philippian church. Well, it's God. God began a good work. And what is that good work? It's not merely the act of creating them as humans. God created us. We know that. Rather, this is God's good work of remaking them at the moment of conversion, of salvation, And the Holy Spirit came upon them, gave them eyes to see the beauty of Christ, ears to hear the gospel, hearts capable of letting go of sin, repenting, embracing Christ by faith. That was God's work. In salvation, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, and we are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. None of us can claim credit. Why is this significant? Well, David prays in the 138th psalm, To God, he says, Do not forsake the work of your hands, he pleads, meaning himself. Well, God doesn't. God does not forsake the work of his hands. He doesn't do anything halfway. My entire house is a testimony, a graveyard to many started and failed projects, many half done projects, some not even started. But God's house projects always get finished. He doesn't save anyone halfway, bring them along in in real faith in Christ, and then just let them go and they wander off and land themselves in hell. He doesn't do that. It's a heavy topic. You might object. But wait, I know people who were sincere Christians who fell away. Maybe you're one of them here this morning. Well, if that's the case, one of two things is true. Either one... That individual never truly belonged to Christ, never truly had faith, but made an outward profession that didn't really have the root of the matter inside them. And their profession proved false. This is what John talks about with some of the false teachers in his day. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So if you're truly of Christ's people, you will continue. If you're here, but not really here, Eventually, an individual will drift. Or, and this second thing may be the case with you, or with an individual you know, if a person does belong to Christ, he may appear to perhaps wander or backslide for a period of time. But God will bring that person back. And Jesus never said that wandering or losing ground spiritually was impossible. He never said that seasons of doubt would never happen. But he did say this in John 10, verse 28. I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, that's John 10. So if no one can snatch a true believer, no matter how far he or she may wander from the hand of Christ and the hand of the Father, then. It stands to reason that they also can't just decide to jump out one day on their own. We call this doctrine the perseverance of the saints. So in other words, those who are saints in Christ will persevere. They will press on and endure to the end because Christ sees to it that they'll press on, not because they're better, not because they're extraordinary in their faith, but because Christ holds them. One more final verse to prove this point Romans 8.30, we call this the golden chain of redemption because it's unbroken. It's an unbroken chain. Listen to this. It's talking about the same group of people no one is lost along the way. Those whom he, God, predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He brings a person from the moment that he knows them and sets them apart in an eternity past to the moment of conversion all throughout life to the moment of glory. And no one's lost along the way, truly. Oh, what a joy this is to the soul, amen? So Paul encourages them. He's seen their fruit. He's seen their willingness to serve the Lord. And so he has warrants to speak confidently that they are truly saved, that they are of the elect, because he sees the fruit. And part of the fruit that convinces him of that is their willingness to suffer. And that's our second point this morning that the joyful Christian partakes in gospel suffering. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he gives two reasons he's so confident that they will persevere, that they're truly in Christ. He holds them in his heart, and yearns for them with Christ's own affection. So it's not just that he likes hanging out with his church friends. This isn't just him getting along with his particular tribe or clique. This is a spirit wrought, Holy Spirit-given love that's not explainable by ordinary means. Second, the reason he feels so much affection towards them is that they partake of grace with him, listen, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And this is true generally and specifically. It's true generally that they stood by him. They stood by the gospel when times were hard. But more narrowly, more specifically, these terms defense and confirmation, these are technical legal terms. Remember how much of the book of Acts is Paul on trial defending himself and his gospel. Paul was often caught up in legal dramas, and it affected the reputation of the Christian community around him. Imagine for a moment if a Bible fellowship pastor in central Pennsylvania somewhere was in the news for some alleged wrongdoing. We would all be innocent or guilty by association, especially these days, like it or not, for better or for worse. By the way, If you're tempted to think something like that could never happen, remember that Paul, when he was jailed in Philippi the first time, he wasn't just jailed for the doctrine that he preached, or even preaching it boldly, or for being a Christian at all. He was arrested in Philippi because his preaching disrupted the local economy. In his case, it was disturbing the business model of the local psychic when he cast out the demon, the fortune-telling demon, out of the young slave girl. In the same way, persecution throughout all of church history is usually by proxy. It's not always direct persecution for a point of doctrine, but it's some other explanation, justification, reason, second or third order application of Christian ethics that is the reason that people, God, people of God are mistreated. What if your pastor's ministry here interrupted the prophet's dream at the local abortion mill at Planned Parenthood in York City, would you be a partaker of grace with him then? What if he was arrested for speaking up at a local drag queen story hour? Would you be a partaker of grace with him then? What if he was jailed for opening his church despite some governmental health edict? Would you be a partaker of grace with him then? What if he was caught Counseling an individual seeking to be healed of homosexual desire or gender dysphoria, not affirmed in it, would you be a partaker of grace with him then in his defense and confirmation of the gospel? Not everyone in Philippi did. Later in chapter 1, we'll see that. There were some who were jealous, envious, sought to do Paul harm. They preached Christ, but out of rivalry thinking, oh, if only Paul was more winsome, the believers in this town would be better off, and the government would get off our backs, and the Jews would get off our backs too. But by and large, the Philippians, they were willing to let their own reputation be judged alongside Paul's for good or for ill. Now, last week, Wes, Pastor Wes, talked about what a hard thing this is to be in a moment of testing of one's faith, to give public testimony to Christ cost of one's well-being. And he was honest with us. It's only by God's grace we'll have that power. Where did the Philippians get their power, we might ask? Well, consider the statement itself in verse 7, that they are partakers with him of grace, even in the midst of Paul's imprisonment. And also in verse 8, Christ set his affection on them, and Paul was a passive vessel through which the affection of Christ was displayed to them. So what strengthened them to stand by Paul in such hard times? The grace of God and the affection of God, the affection of Jesus himself towards them through Paul, channeled through a human relationship. In other words, God's kindness and forgiveness and mercy and Jesus' love is what empowered them to stand by Paul. These things will enable us too, if we let them. They'll enable us to persevere, which takes us to our third and final point, that the joyful Christian not only partakes of gospel suffering, but perseveres in gospel fruit. The joyful Christian perseveres in gospel fruit. And we'll turn our attention now to the final three verses, Paul's prayer in verses 9, 10, and 11 so having having given thanks for them paul prays not only for their needs and the prayer requests that they have but for them themselves their growth in christ their growth in grace and he prays for them as people in three ways first that their love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment three traits so that they may approve what is excellent, verse 9. And don't miss the significance of these three traits together, love, knowledge, and discernment. And we've already seen the Philippians love for God, for the gospel, for Paul, for each other. And we know what Scripture says about love, that love is patient, love is kind, doesn't seek its own. Love is unconditionally choosing to put the other person's good above yours. Without love... Truth, knowledge, all those sorts of things, they can become cold and bitter. But let's recognize here, we as sinners, we tend to tear apart what God has brought together. We tear asunder what God has joined as one. One of the things that we tear apart in our minds is truth or knowledge and discernment and love. Love without truth becomes empty emotional affirmations, stripped of all reference to reality. We see that today. Truth without love can be cold and calculating and bitter and harsh. That's why Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 8 that love builds up while so called knowledge puffs up. So we need love and truth. We know we need love and truth. That's not difficult for us to grasp. But let's also recognize love and truth are not opposites on a spectrum, opposite poles as if the correct balance were somewhere in the middle. Or not yin and yang, black and white, and the perfect mixture is 50-50. You need half of both, perhaps. They fit together like a gem in its setting. Or, to borrow a phrase from an old historic confession of faith, they sweetly comply. God is not half love and half truth. God is love. And Jesus says, I am the truth. So God is all love and all truth. So we are to be all love and all truth, not somehow cutting corners to be a bit of both, but fully committed to both. And the type of knowledge that Paul talks about here is discerning knowledge, because he prays that they would grow with love, with knowledge, and all discernment. Discernment today has lost a lot of its meaning. Sometimes we associate it with angry blogs and podcasts, people that spend too much time sharing memes on the Internet. True discernment, though, is not a a mark of spiritual immaturity as we might be tempted to regard it. Rather, true discernment is a mark of increasing spiritual maturity. Another word for discernment is wisdom. It's not just knowing the right information, it's knowing when and how to apply it in a good and right and proper way. Charles Spurgeon famously said this, that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, it's knowing the difference between right and almost right. A member of our church told me years ago that he and his wife regularly pray to grow in discernment. I think that's a good practice to follow. I think that's a a good example we should earnestly covet the gift of discernment because we live in an age of ignorance. Look at the statistics. How many professing Christians don't understand the gospel? Heaven, hell, are the realities of, of man and woman, the exclusivity of Christ, the self-existence of God. If we're not faithful with what we have, even the knowledge that we have will be taken away, Matthew thirteen twelve. We ought to be good stewards of the faith that's been given to us, deposited to us. So we should grow in knowledge and discernment so that, see, those three traits are aimed at an objective, so that they would approve, verse 10, what is excellent. See, disapproving of what's happening in an ungodly world is only half the battle, so many, many of us spend so much time scrolling and looking into the, the mouth of darkness, into the abyss, we forget that's only part of the equation. The other part is to approve what is excellent. Or, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, the darkness can only tear down, pervert, corrupt, destroy, cancel, deconstruct. It can't build anything. It can't build institutions. It can't be a part of the kingdom Christ is building. Only we can build. And we ought to. We ought to be building up, even now, our Christian homes, Christian businesses, Christian homeschool co-ops, Christian laws, not under some utopian fantasy, but out of love for our neighbors, so that when culture bottoms out, they'd know where to turn. So that there would be an alternative, so that they can climb onto our ark, or so that when the plague of darkness spreads, they'd be able to come to the sunlight in Goshen. We have to be ready with an alternative. Approving what is excellent, returning to verse 10 and into verse 11, they'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. They'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul returns to this idea of perseverance on the last day, just like he did in verse 6 where we studied the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And he paints this picture. When Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, reveal the new heavens and the new earth, will we be found with fruit to show or will we be caught fruitless. Make no mistake, Paul's not implying that our fruit or our works will justify us on that day. The faith that we already have, we have by faith. Excuse me, the righteousness we already have, we have by faith. We are righteous through faith in Christ. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 3. He speaks of the righteousness that is by faith. But that righteousness that we have by faith, we bear fruit in. That's a righteousness that by the spirit's power in our lives bears fruit and change in our lives. Fruit that we want to be eager to give to the Lord on that last day. A harvest. We want to have something to show for it. In the Odyssey, Odysseus, the great Greek prince and hero, leaves his home on Ithaca to fight in the Trojan War. After the 10-year war, through a series of unfortunate events, he finally ends up held captive on the island of Ogygia and then begins his trek home. Meanwhile, this whole time, the townsmen back home in Ithaca have been competing to woo his wife, Penelope. They've been living off his estate. They've been stealing his food and wine and carousing at night, presuming the master of the house will never return. It would have been easy for Penelope to marry one of them and have more to live off of, have stability in her life, and stability for their son, Telemachus. After 20 years, Odysseus finally returns home, disguised as an old man, to slay the evil suitors and to see what's become of his wife, Penelope. What he finds is that she's remained chaste. She told the suitors that she would marry one of them, As soon as she finishes sewing this shroud for her father-in-law's burial, let me just do this last thing. And so she's spinning at the wheel each day, and yet at night, for three years straight, she's unraveling it thread by thread so that it's never finished. A clever lady. And she's faithful to her husband until the day that Odysseus returns home and he says to their son, here I am, and I am as you see me. Oh, that we would be pure and blameless and found chaste when our groom returns for his bride, our I am returns and presents himself to us, amen? That no matter how many suitors in the world might try to allure us, entice us, that we would be found faithful. Well, God grants that so that he gets all the credit. Verse 11, he grants that to the glory and praise of God. He gives the power to stay faithful as we wait for the day of Christ. So as we close, let me begin, as we do here, by addressing any unbelievers here or listening or watching this after the fact. And first of all, if you're here and if you're not a Christian or not entirely sure where you stand, we're glad you're here. We hope that you feel welcome. We hope that you know that we're a resource for you. You're welcome to ask questions. And hopefully you sense the joy of being a part of this fellowship, but don't take lightly in this sermon on joy the fact that the day of Christ is mentioned twice already in this first introduction to the book. See, one day the master of the house will return and will slay his enemies, and what will he do with you? The only way to be ready for that day is to call upon Christ for salvation, If you're here today and if you've never truly done so, or maybe you did so as a kid, but if you were honest today, you didn't really mean it as you look back now, let me lovingly exhort you, come to Christ. He died for your sins, suffering the wrath of God on your behalf. He rose on the third day victorious so that he can take the perfect life of law-keeping and righteousness that he lived and credit it to you, not because you're trying to make amends in life now, but purely because you're trusting in him by faith. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father to personally intercede for us so that we could be set free. If you come to him today, he promises to cleanse you, forgive you, save you, adopt you as his beloved child. And so let the darkness of the days in which we live The confusingness of the culture be the thing that wakes you up today and brings you back to the recognition, I need to call upon the Lord. Whoever calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And to the believers who are here, well, we're given many reasons in Scripture to rejoice, and today we rejoice over God's sovereignty, over our final salvation that will persevere to the end. But if you recall, when we introduced the series this morning, we asked not only how should I feel about my life, my soul's state, but also how should I feel looking out to the world, to the church, to the surrounding culture and environment. Verse six is so great, but one thing that we didn't consider about it is that the word you is plural. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's speaking not just to the individual Christian, but to the church, to the Philippian church itself. God will complete, bring to its fulfillment, the good work that he began in the church at Philippi. And even though that particular church is now lost in the sands of time, the fact that they live on 2,000 years later in this book is itself a testimony We're getting to know them these next three weeks. It's a testimony that God never let them go, that God finished the work that he started in them and that they broke the tape. They finished their race. He brought them across the finish line. And let me give you one final encouragement this morning. Church, God did not plant this church in 1914 in vain. He will fulfill what he started here, and he will fulfill what he started in his global church. When the master of the house returns, he won't return to a weak, beleaguered bride that failed her mission. He'll return to a faithful bride that he's readied from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and a kingdom that's ready to be consummated and fully displayed in history. Because Jesus said in Matthew 18, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Against it, rather. Consider the words of the song. For our lives, he bled and died. Christ will hold us fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold us fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold us fast. Till our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at last. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you give us grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have fellowship together on our mission no matter how costly it is. That we can rejoice in the relationships that we have here. Not just because we get along, not just because we're socially compatible, but because we're fellow sinners saved and turned into slaves of Christ, saints set apart for you. People that you'll bring to heaven, to glory, to the new heavens and new earth someday, regardless of our failures, our doubts, our seasons of backsliding, because you are faithful and you will finish the good work that you began in us. And Father, we thank you that you hold us. Help us to remember in the months and years ahead, despite all the challenges we may face, that you will hold us and you will build your church. And the gates of hell don't stand a chance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.